What do these movies have in common? Anthropoid, Deepwater Horizon, Dunkirk, Darkest Hour, and The Greatest Showman. Those are the few movies we've covered here on Based on a True Story before the movie itself was released. So the way that worked was instead of assuming you've seen the movie already and comparing the movie to history, those few episodes focus on the story in history that the movie is covering. That way, instead of retroactively watching the movie first and then comparing history to a movie you're already familiar with, the idea for the pre-release episodes is for you to listen to the episode first and then you'll know more about the real story when you go see the movie. Today, we're going to go back to The Greatest Showman. We're bringing back a movie we've already covered before the movie came out on episode 84. This time, we're going to give it the normal based on a true story treatment where we'll compare history with the movie's timeline. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. First, let's set up our game, two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, P.T. Barnum had two children with charity. Number two, Philip Carlyle and Ann Wheeler were never interested in each other. Number three, P.T. Barnum and Jenny Lind never had an affair. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Alrighty, now if you're a Based on a True Story producer, it's time for your peek at next week's minisode, and it's going to be the classic Disney animated film, Aladdin. Obviously, it's a fictional story, but we'll be looking at some of the facts and history that was depicted in the movie all the same. And if you're not a Based on a True Story producer, you can get instant access to all of the past bonus episodes and make sure you'll get the Aladdin minisode when it's released by hopping over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Alrighty, and now it's time to dive into our story today as we bring back the Greatest Showman. The movie opens with a great shot of Hugh Jackman's character, Phineas Taylor Barnum, or just P.T. Barnum for short. With legs crossed, a cane in his right hand and a top hat, there's light streaming down on Barnum from above. In the background, there are people sitting in the stands with the light beyond. As the music swells, Barnum dances to it, and the people in the stands stomp their feet, creating a beat. Hugh Jackman's character starts the lyrics and races to the circus floor where he's joined by the whole troupe. They're singing and dancing along to the epic title track to the movie, The Greatest Show. So I think this is a great opportunity to set the expectations for our story today. We won't really be covering any of the music in the movie. Sorry, if you're like my wife, that's probably your favorite part of the film, and that's perfectly fine. But we're here to chat about the historical accuracy of the movie, and 
Obviously, the music isn't very historically accurate. The real P.T. Barnum didn't sing at his shows, and his story wasn't a feel-good musical like the movie shows. Oh, and while we're setting the expectations, there's one more thing to mention. P.T. Barnum was a great showman, but he wasn't so great at being completely honest. By that, what I mean is he often tended to stretch the truth a bit to tell a better story. That included the story of his own life in his autobiographies. So just remember to take everything with a grain of salt, even the historical facts we think we know. With that said, as the opening song fades out, we see a younger Phineas. Actually, as a side note here, for the purpose of this episode, let's call the younger P.T. Barnum Taylor. The movie just calls the character Young Barnum, and while Phineas was his first name, calling him Taylor is a little more authentic because that's what Phineas Taylor Barnum's mother usually called him. So where were we? Oh yeah, in the movie, Taylor is looking longingly through the window of a shop. Looking down, we can see his toe wiggling through his boot. It's clear that owning the bright red suit we see in the shop is just a dream. Then we see Barnum's father, Philo. He's played by Will Swenson in the movie, and we can see young Taylor carrying a case while his dad carries a few rolls of fabrics. Together, they walk up to a grand home. Inside, Philo is taking measurements of someone who we must assume is the homeowner. Young Taylor gets distracted by the pretty girl his age who is in the other room. She's learning the proper way to drink tea from someone who we must assume is her mother. Pinky in the air, arm extended. In the other room, Taylor mimics her movements, causing both children to burst out laughing. That's when we hear the young girl's name from her father, Charity. He calls her over and scolds her for laughing. Is this how we've taught you to behave? Taylor steps up, taking the blame. After thanking him for being honest, Charity's father slaps Taylor across the face. Stay away from my daughter, he tells Taylor as he takes Charity away. Oh, and the young Charity is played by Skylar Dunn, while young Taylor is played by Ellis Rubin. This scene is a fictional one, but the purpose in the movie is really to introduce us to a few new characters who were real. Let's start with his father, who the movie correctly shows as being a tailor. But he was more than that. He was also an innkeeper, ran a country store, a livery stable, and, well, whatever he could be to help keep putting food on the table for his family. Like the movie implies from the hole in young Taylor's boot, they didn't have a lot of money growing up. That brings us to the family they're visiting. Even though the movie doesn't really state who they are, we can assume from the young girl being charity that the family is the Hallett family. Mr. and Mrs. Hallett, who are played by Frederick Lean and Catherine Meisel, respectively, aren't named in this part of the movie, but again, we can pull from history to learn that their names are Benjamin and Hannah Hallett. Or, I guess I should say, Private Hallett, because Benjamin served in the Connecticut militia during the War of 1812. As for our story today, though, I couldn't find anything in my research that indicated Benjamin Hallett was so opposed to the interest between Taylor and Charity. That doesn't mean it's not true. After all, a father disliking who his daughter takes interest in isn't exactly something that gets documented every time. But if he did disapprove, then it wasn't something that seemed to be a big enough deal to warrant a mention in Taylor's autobiography. Speaking of the interest between Taylor and Charity, the movie is correct in showing the connection between the two. 
In fact, not to get too far ahead of our story, but Charity Hallett would end up being Taylor's wife one day. And while the movie never really mentions how old they are in this scene, we know from history that they met as teenagers. In his autobiography, P.T. Barnum recalled the first time he met Charity. Here's how he described it. As my mother continued to keep the village tavern at Bethel, I usually went home on Saturday night and stayed till Monday morning, going to church with my mother on Sunday. This habit was the occasion of an experience of momentous consequence to me. One Saturday evening, during a violent thundershower, Miss Mary Wheeler, a milliner, sent me word that there was a girl from Bethel at her house who had come on horseback to get a new bonnet, that she was afraid to go back alone. And if I was going to Bethel that evening, she wished me to escort her customer. I assented and went over to Aunt Rusia's, where I was introduced to Charity Hallett, a fair, rosy-cheeked, buxom girl with beautiful white teeth. I assisted her to her saddle, and mounting my own horse, we trotted towards Bethel. My first impressions of this girl as I saw her at the house were exceedingly favorable. As soon as we started, I began a conversation with her, and finding her very affable, I regretted that the distance to Bethel was not five miles instead of one. A flash of lightning gave me a distinct view of the face of my fair companion, and then I wished the distance was twenty miles. During our ride, I learned that she was a tailoress, working with Mr. Zara Benedict of Bethel. We soon arrived at our destination, and I bid her good night and went home. The next day, I saw her at church, and, indeed, many Sundays afterwards, but I had no opportunity to renew the acquaintance that season. That was towards the end of 1825, and since P.T. Barnum was born in 1810 and Charity Hallett was born in 1808, that means he would have been 14 or 15 while she would have been 16 or 17. Probably the most inaccurate part of that opening scene where we see Taylor and Charity meet is the purpose for the visit. As we just learned from his autobiography, Taylor wasn't there to help his father in his duties as a tailor. But there's a good reason for that, and it has to do with the timeline of the movie being a bit off when it shows Philo getting sick and passing away after Taylor and Charity meet. You see, Philo Barnum died on September 7, 1825, at only 48 years old. That was before Taylor met Charity later the same year. And the death of his father at such a young age left Taylor's mother with five children to look after without any income. They didn't have any money before his father's passing. They had even less after it. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. 
Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Going back to the movie, we see these hard times hit Taylor as he's stealing bread and selling discarded newspapers, all as he's writing to charity while she's at finishing school. Then there's a moment there where we see young Taylor hear someone advertising getting jobs at the railroad. All we see is him walking toward the man making the announcement. The movie never mentions how much time has passed, but we're left to assume he's working there for quite some time because in the next scene, we see a grown P.T. Barnum, now played by Hugh Jackman. And he's back at the Hallett's home to pick up Charity, who's now played by Michelle Williams. In the next scene, we see a CG version of a period New York City that indicates they're no longer in Connecticut. While that's obviously skipping over quite a bit of time, it's also not very accurate. You see, P.T. Barnum hated physical labor. And if there's one thing building a railroad is, well, it's a lot of physical labor. He hated physical labor so much that he would do whatever he could to avoid it. But as we learned earlier, his family didn't have a lot of money. So at a young age, Barnum found himself in a bit of a predicament. He needed to make money, but he didn't want to do physical labor to get it. Fortunately, he was smart. Mathematics was something he latched onto very quickly at school, and it came in handy as he tried to get out of doing physical labor to make money. If it wasn't one scheme, he'd come up with another. All the time, he learned what sort of things would attract people's attention and got them to part with the coins in their pocket. As you can probably guess, that would come in handy later in life. We learned more details about the sort of things that he did in the pre-release episode for The Greatest Showman, episode number 84, if based on a true story, but he came up with some clever ideas. For example, he auctioned books, did real estate speculation, and even started a lottery network across the entire state of Connecticut. And speaking of the lottery network, that's actually the real reason why Phineas moved to New York City. It wasn't something they did right after he and Charity were married like the movie shows. It also didn't happen nearly as fast as the movie shows. But let's not get ahead of ourselves because moving to New York City wasn't the only part of the timeline that the movie gets wrong. In the summer of 1829, P.T. Barnum and Charity Hallett were formally engaged. If you remember, the two met in 1825 so they were engaged just four years after meeting each other. So that means all that time passing where the movie makes it seem like young Taylor is off working on the railroad would have only been four years. Maybe it's just me, but the actors playing young P.T. Barnum and young Charity look quite a bit beyond just four years younger than Hugh Jackman and Michelle Williams. They were only engaged for a few months because it was on November 3rd, 1829 when the two were married. But it wasn't like Phineas and Charity got married with the idea they'd run away to New York City, like the movie implies. The movie never shows this, but Phineas had his own general store, something he was familiar with running thanks to his time in his father's shop as a child. He also started his own newspaper in Connecticut. It was called The Herald of Freedom, a name inspired by the paper's content. With the first issue published on October 19, 1831, the Herald of Freedom was heavily inspired by Phineas's upbringing in the strict world of Calvinism, and the paper spoke out boldly against the religious oppression Phineas felt. But, as we learned, it was the lottery network that ended up being the reason for their move. 
That happened in 1834 when the state of Connecticut banned lotteries. Losing such a source of income, Phineas published his last issue of the Herald on November 5, 1834. That was his 160th issue of the paper. He technically owned it for a little while longer while his brother-in-law published it for him, but he ended up selling it the next year. Meanwhile, Phineas moved his family to New York City in the winter of 1834 and early 1835. And by family, I do mean family. The movie never shows this, of course, because their timeline is rushed, but by the time the Barnum family moved to New York City, it was not just Phineas and Charity because little Caroline was born in 1833. In the movie, Caroline is played by Austin Johnson. So that means the next part in the movie is a little backward because it shows Charity getting pregnant after they arrive in New York City. Well, sort of. By that, I mean even though Caroline was born in 1833 before they moved to New York City, she also wasn't the last of their children. They ended up having four. But in the next scene in the movie, we see two girls. That can give us a bit of a hint for the timeline because their second child, Helen, was born in 1840. When we see Helen, she's obviously not a baby. She's closer to nine, which is the age of Cameron Seeley, the actor who played Helen. The movie never mentions her age here, but I'm estimating that based on Cameron being born in 2007, the movie being released in 2017, so when that scene was shot, I'm estimating around a year before. Well, none of that is a very scientific figuring out of that year. It Really, to point out that the movie's timeline here must not only be after 1840 when Helen was born, but many years after. And even if we're off by a year here or there, the movie's timeline would still be off by quite a bit because Phineas's first venture into the shows that would end up turning into the circus was a traveling company that started in 1837. The movie never shows any of that, though. And not to get too far ahead of our story, but it was in 1841 when the traveling company ended and Barnum's American Museum opened in New York City. Since we're on the topic of Barnum's Museum, that's the topic for the next major plot point in the movie. After the trading company he works for loses their fleet of ships and a tycoon in the South China Sea, Phineas and everyone working for the company lose their jobs. As he's packing up his desk, one of the documents he grabs is a deed for the contents of one of the ships. Of course, the contents of that ship are at the bottom of the sea, but news didn't travel as quickly as it does today. So Phineas uses the deed as collateral to get a $10,000 loan from the bank. Then he uses that to open the museum. Inside, he stocked the museum with a bunch of wax figures and stuffed animals. We already learned from the timeline for when the museum started was a little bit off, but that seems fitting because the rest of this is a bit off too. As we learned earlier, Phineas had already had his taste of running businesses by the time he moved to New York City. But, as we also learned, Barnum's American Museum was real. He just didn't buy it with a $10,000 bank loan with collateral from a deed to a sunken ship. Far from it, actually. What really happened was that Phineas started a touring company of performers in 1837. They had some limited amounts of success, but it wasn't something that could be sustained. One tour would go well, the next not so much. And it wasn't very stable at all. It wasn't like Phineas had a tour of shows planned every year. It was one tour at a time, one show at a time. It was a roller coaster that Phineas was tiring of quickly. After one of the tours ended, Phineas was back home in New York City when he happened to hear about a massive collection of, as he called it, curiosities. 
this collection had cost its owner, John Scudder, over $50,000 to amass. He showed the collection in a museum called Scudder's American Museum, which he opened in 1810, the same year Phineas was born. In 1841, though, Scudder was gone. He passed away in 1821, and the collection belonged to his daughters, while the building itself belonged to a man named Francis Olmsted. For a while, they tried to keep the museum open, but it was failing. As a result, its owners were eager to get rid of it. The asking price was $15,000, and even though he was interested, Phineas didn't have that kind of money. For a bit of context, $15,000 in 1841 is about the same as $362,000 today, or about 317 euros. Phineas tried to work out a deal with Francis Olmsted's administrator, a man named John Heath. He proposed that he pay annual installments over the next seven years, totaling $10,000. They went back and forth for a few days, and finally, Heath and Phineas agreed on $12,000 using Phineas's terms of annual payments over the next seven years. It seemed Olmsted agreed to this deal too, and they decided on a day to drop the official paperwork and sign the contracts. But when Phineas showed up, well, tell you what, let's defer to Phineas's own words to find out what happened and how he dealt with the situation. Mr. Heath appeared, but said he must decline proceeding any farther in my case, as he had sold the collection to the directors of Peel's Museum, an incorporated institution, for $15,000 and had received $1,000 in advance. I was shocked and appealed to Mr. Heath's honor. He said that he had signed no writing with me, was in no way legally bound, and that it was his duty to do the best he could for the heirs. Mr. Olmsted was sorry, but could not help me. The new tenants would not require him to incur any risk, and my matter was at an end. Of course, I immediately informed myself as to the character of Peel's Museum Company. It proved to be a band of speculators who had bought Peel's collection for a few thousand dollars, expecting to join the American Museum with it issue and sell stock to the amount of $50,000, pocket $30,000 in profits, and permit the stockholders to look out for themselves. I went immediately to several of the editors, including Major M.M. Noah, M.Y. Beach, my good friends, West, Herrick, and Ropes of the Atlas, and others, and stated my grievances. Now, said I, if you will grant me the use of your columns, I'll blow that speculation sky high. They all consented, and I wrote a large number of squibs cautioning the public against buying the museum stock, ridiculing the idea of a board of broken-down bank directors engaging in the exhibition of stuffed monkey and gander skins, appealing to the case of the Zoological Institute, which had failed by adopting such a plan as the one now proposed. And finally, I told the public that such a speculation would be infinitely more ridiculous than Dickens's Grand United Metropolitan Hot Muffin and Crumpet Banking and... Punctual Delivery Company. The stock was as dead as a herring. I then went to Mr. Heath and asked him when the directors were to pay the other 14000 On the 26th day of December, or forfeit the $1,000 already paid, was the reply. I assured him that they would never pay it, and they could not raise it, and that he would ultimately find himself with the museum collection on his hands, and if once I started off with an exhibition for the South... I would not touch the museum at any price. Now, said I, if you will agree with me confidentially that in case these gentlemen do not pay you on the 26th of December, I may have it on the 27th for $12,000. I will run the risk and wait in this city until that date. 
he readily agreed to the proposition, but he said he was sure they would not forfeit their $1,000. Very well, said I. All I ask of you is that this arrangement shall not be mentioned. He assented. On the 27th day of December at 10 o'clock a.m., I wish you to meet me at Mr. Olmsted's apartments, prepared to sign the writings, provided this incorporated company do not pay you $14,000 on the 26th. He agreed to this, and by my request, put it in writing. From that moment, I felt that the museum was mine. I saw Mr. Olmsted and told him so. He promised secrecy and agreed to sign the documents if the other parties did not meet their engagement. Well, I think you can guess whether or not they paid the other $14,000. So you can get an idea of the sort of wheeling and dealing style business deals that Phineas made to get the museum toward the end of 1841. Soon after the museum was his, Phineas continued to add to the collection of curiosities inside by purchasing items. Just the following year, 1842, he bought the entire collection from Peel's museum and merged it into his own. He kept buying whatever he could to keep adding to the collection, all in the hopes of keeping visitors coming back. Going back to the movie, after buying the museum, things aren't going so well. We see shots of Phineas and his kids handing out flyers, but then, looking in the street, we can see the potential patrons simply tossing the flyers to the ground. They're littering the street. Checking the sales at the box office, Phineas learns that a grand total of three tickets sold. Charity and their two daughters. This is when, according to the movie, Phineas has another idea for how to increase ticket sales. The inspiration comes from his daughters, who suggest he find something sensational, something that's not stuffed, like a mermaid or a unicorn. Later that night, Hugh Jackman's version of Phineas notices an apple sitting on his desk. He's reminded of the girl who handed him an apple when he was poor, a girl whose genetic makeup would have made her someone others teased and mocked. In the very next scene, we see Phineas walking up to a house. He knocks on the door. When the door opens, Phineas is the first to speak. Gertrude Stratton, I'm trying to find your son. The woman doesn't hesitate. I don't have a son. Phineas holds up a piece of paper. Odd, the hospital records say you do. If you pause the movie right here like I did, you can get a lot more information about what's happening here than the dialogue in the movie indicates. The paper has the name Charles Stratton on it and gives an address of Huntington Road in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So Phineas has traveled back to Connecticut to find Charles. Circled on the paper is the height, which says 25 inches. And interestingly, for some reason, Hugh Jackman's version of P.T. Barnum tells Gertrude that Charles is 22, right? Even though... On the paper, it says his age is 10 years old. Of course, we don't have any sort of indication for time at this point, so maybe the movie is implying that Phineas is holding a 12-year-old record from the hospital. Then the movie continues as Phineas meets Charles, who's played by Sam Humphrey in the film, and tells him that he's building a show and he needs a star. Charles says he just wants people to laugh at him, to which Phineas replies, they're laughing anyway. Might as well get paid. Not surprisingly, it doesn't make Charles want to do it. Phineas then tells him that he needs a general, someone to ride across stage wearing the most beautiful uniform ever made, carrying his trusty sword and gun. When people see the general, they won't laugh. They'll salute you. This catches Charles's attention, and he agrees to join Barnum's museum. The basic gist of this is something that happened, but not in any way how the movie shows it happening. 
let's start with the very brief mention of the mermaids and unicorns that Phineas's daughters, Caroline and Helen, suggest to their dad. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but Phineas did bring a mermaid to his museum. Well, it was a straight-up hoax, but he claimed it to be something called the Fiji Mermaid. It was the mummified remains of a very strange-looking creature. A lot of people believed it was fake, something Phineas made himself, but he insisted it wasn't. And for what it's worth, he was probably right about not making it himself. Phineas's story was that he bought it from a sailor who had bought it in India from some Japanese sailors some 20 years earlier in 1822. Of course, even though he may not have lied about where he got it from, it didn't help that Phineas made up the story of the mermaid coming from the island of Fiji, hence the name. Why would Phineas lie about something like that? Well, this wasn't about the mermaid specifically, but more an overall quote. But many years later, in 1860, Phineas wrote this to a newspaper. I believe hugely in advertising and blowing my own trumpet, beating the gongs, drums, to attract attention to a show. I don't believe in duping the public, but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing them. So it wasn't so much about the hoax of it for Phineas, but rather that making outrageous claims seemed to be what made the people visiting his museum happy. In other words, people wanted to believe that truth was stranger than fiction. So Phineas obliged by just making up some truth. As for where the Fiji mermaid really came from, it was a mummy made by sewing together the head of a young monkey to the back half of a fish. Some historians have suggested that perhaps sewing together two different animals were part of religious rituals in Japan, so that's probably where it came from. And as you can probably guess, the result looked unlike anything that exists in nature. I'll add a link in the show notes for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com where you can see photos of the Fiji mermaid. Although the movie skips over the mermaid, it is true that P.T. Barnum hired a man named Charles Stratton and Charles did live in Bridgeport. But, well, man wouldn't be the right term. He was a boy. He wasn't 22 years old when Phineas hired him. He wasn't 10 years old. He was 4 years old. However, he was 25 inches or about 64 centimeters tall, like the movie suggests with the writing on the paper. That was a height he'd reached at 6 months old, and since then, he simply stopped growing. As a quick little side note, Charles's real mother wasn't named Gertrude like the movie shows either. His dad's name was Sherwood, and his mom was Sherwood's first cousin, a woman named Cynthia. Speaking of which, Phineas himself was related to Charles Stratton. Not very closely, though. He was Charles's half-fifth cousin twice removed. Again, let's use Phineas's own words to learn more about how he really met Charles Stratton, the boy who used the stage name General Tom Thumb. In November 1842, I was in Albany on business, and as the Hudson River was frozen over, I returned to New York City by the Housatonic Railroad, stopping one night at Bridgeport, Connecticut with my brother, Philo F. Barnum, who at that time kept the Franklin Hotel. I had heard of a remarkably small child in Bridgeport, and at my request, my brother brought him to the hotel. He was not two feet high, he weighed less than 16 pounds, and he was the smallest child I ever saw that could walk alone. But he was a perfectly formed, bright-eyed little fellow, with light hair and ruddy cheeks, and he enjoyed the best of health. He was exceedingly bashful, but after some coaxing, he was induced to talk with me, and he told me that he was the son of Sherwood E. Stratton, and that his own name 
was Charles S. Stratton. After seeing him and talking with him, I at once determined to secure his services from his parents to exhibit him in public. But as he was only five years of age, to exhibit him as a dwarf might provoke the inquiry, how do you know he is a dwarf? Some liberty might be taken with the facts, but even with this license, I felt that the venture was only an experiment, and I engaged him for four weeks at $3 a week, with all traveling and boarding charges for himself and his mother at my expense. They came to New York Thanksgiving Day, December 8, 1842, and Mrs. Stratton was greatly surprised to see her son announced on my museum bills as General Tom Thumb. So, as we can tell, the way Phineas met Charles was quite different than the movie shows. Oh, and I should point out that even though Phineas said Charles was five years old, that's not quite right. Charles Stratton was born on January 4th, 1838, which would mean by the time November and December of 1842 came around, he would have been four. Maybe closer to five than four, but not quite there yet. Although he was five when he went on his first tour of America with Phineas's traveling show. He sang, danced, and did impersonations of characters like Napoleon Bonaparte and Cupid. To help push the illusion that Charles was even shorter than he should be for his age, Phineas went the extra step and claimed he was 11 years old. Not to get too far ahead of our story, but in the years to come, another way Phineas would make it seem like Charles was older than he actually was happened through him drinking alcohol and puffing on cigars during his impersonations, things he did as young as seven. His stage name of General Tom Thumb wasn't something unique to Phineas. In fact, It had been used by performers before, including another one in New York City at the time. But it was Charles' version of Tom Thumb that became more popular, and soon the name became synonymous with him. Why were there multiple Tom Thumbs? Well, the name originally came from an old English folktale that tells the story of one of King Arthur's knights who was small enough to ride a mouse into battle. If you want to hear that tale, I've recorded it as a separate bonus episode for Based on a True Story producers. You can grab that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. For our story today, though, let's hop back into the movie's timeline. After attending a ballet with his daughters, Phineas runs into a playwright by the name of Philip Carlyle. He's played by Zac Efron in the movie. Initially, Phineas mocks Philip's profession. Then... Phineas sees some of the other little girls teasing Caroline because of her father's profession. As they leave, Caroline says something that would cut to the heart of any father. She says she's quitting the ballet because she started too late. Takes years of hard work, and you can't just fake it like the circus. Ouch. Maybe it's time to add some legitimacy to the museum. Later, we see Phineas having drinks with Philip, and he agrees to help him do that. None of that is true. In fact, Zac Efron's character, Philip Carlyle, is completely fictional and was made up for the movie. Although, maybe it's a little harsh to say none of it was true. The one thread of truth in there was that Phineas wanted to add some legitimacy to his show. But before we learn more about that, let's hop back into the movie because the next major plot point occurs when Phineas finds a way to bring some legitimacy to the... Actually, real quick, it's worth pointing out that the movie uses the term circus loosely throughout the entire film. It's not really accurate. Phineas didn't run a circus at this point in his career. He ran Barnum's American Museum. I know it may seem like splitting hairs, but most historians will point out that P.T. Barnum did not get into the circus business until he was in his 60s, way past the timeline of the movie. At this point, 
It was a museum, a collection of artifacts and curiosities from around the world. As far as the performers go, that was part of what was considered a theater. In fact, before he bought the building in New York City and stuck to a single location more, in the late 1830s, P.T. Barnum's first company of performers toured under the name Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. Okay, with that said, where were we again? That's right, adding some legitimacy to the show. In the movie, after agreeing to join the show, we see a song by Zac Efron and Hugh Jackman. At the end of that song, we're taken to the museum where we see a show being performed. It's clear that Zac Efron's character is smitten with the trapeze artist. She's played by Zendaya in the movie, and that's not true. Just like Zac Efron's fictional character, Philip Carlyle, Zendaya's character, Ann Wheeler, is also fictional. So it's natural to assume the love interest between the two made-up characters is also fictional. Speaking of characters named Anne, there was a real Annie working for P.T. Barnum. We actually see her in this scene, even though she's more of a background character at this point in the movie. I'm referring to, of course, Annie Jones. The real Annie was the basis for the movie's character of Letty Lutz, the bearded lady. She's played by Keila Settle in the film. Although, the movie will be incorrect in showing her performing at this point because even though the movie doesn't give any indication of what year it is, we're assuming not a lot of time has passed from when Phineas hired Charles Stratton. If you recall, that was at the end of 1842. The real Annie Jones was born over two decades later in 1865. Sadly, Annie was exhibited at Barnum's Museum since she was just one year old. As a child, Phineas paid Annie's parents $150 a week to exhibit their child. That's about $24,500 per week today, or about 21,500 euros. Back in the movie, Barnum's troupe heads to England where they meet Queen Victoria. She's played by Gail Rankin. After an awkward moment where Charles mentions that the Queen isn't very tall and turns into a sigh of relief when she bursts into laughter, a new character is introduced. It's Miss Jenny Lind. She's played by Rebecca Ferguson in the movie. Philip explains to Phineas, and us as viewers, who Jenny is. According to the movie, she's an opera singer. Not just any singer, though. She's one of the most famous performers in all of Europe. Introducing themselves, Phineas tells Jenny that he'd like to bring her to New York. He wants her to perform for his show. He claims he can make her the most famous singer in the entire world, not just Europe. She asks if he's heard her sing. He says he hasn't, but her reputation precedes her. He offers her 20% of the admission at the door. Just once, Phineas tells Jenny, I'd like to give the people something real. In the next scene, we see Jenny performing in New York City. She must have agreed. The basic gist here is true, but that's not really how it happened. Remember how we learned earlier that Charles Stratton toured the U.S. as Tom Thumb? Well, what really happened was a lot slower than the movie makes it seem. It was in 1844 and 1845 when Phineas took Charles on a tour of England. They did actually meet Queen Victoria while they were there, although I couldn't find any mention in my research to indicate that a joke was made like the movie shows. But it was while he was here that Phineas heard tell of Jenny Lind. The movie is correct in showing that Phineas had never heard her sing. He actually left London weeks before she arrived there. Phineas knew he wasn't much of a musician anyway. He knew Jenny could pull a crowd, though. Here's where the timeline in the movie is sped up a lot. It wasn't until years after the European tour, in October of 1849, that Phineas decided to try to bring Jenny Lind to America. The details were worked out, 
through one of Phineas's agents, a man named John Wilton. Here's how Phineas remembered the moment Jenny signed the contract. I was at my museum in Philadelphia when Wilton arrived in New York, February 19, 1850. He immediately telegraphed to me in the cipher we had agreed upon that he had signed an engagement with Jenny Lind, by which she was to commence her concerts in America in the following September. I was somewhat startled by this sudden announcement and the feeling that the time to elapse before her arrival was so long that it would be policy to keep the engagement private for a few months. I immediately telegraphed him not to mention it to any person and that I would meet him the next day in New York. So that's a little different than what the movie shows. And he didn't offer her 20% of the door like the movie shows either. Instead, he offered her a contract to do 150 performances, one a night at $1,000 per night. Today, that $150,000 is about the same as $4.5 million or about 4 million euros. Oh, and the, quote, Swedish Nightingale, end quote, was really a nickname for Jenny Lind. Back in the movie, we see some controversy next as Jenny's tour across America takes place. With Phineas by her side, Jenny is basking in the success. There are rave reviews in the papers, the crowds love her, and the stage after her performance is littered with roses from the adoring audience. Meanwhile, back home, we see Michelle Williams' version of Charity taking care of the kids. As Jenny and Phineas are sitting on the couch in their room in Cincinnati, pouring a couple of glasses of champagne, Jenny hands one to Phineas. Then, sitting down next to him, Phineas thanks her for helping to make his dream come true. As moviegoers, we can all see where this is going. Looking into each other's eyes, Phineas surprises us by doing the right thing. He says he should go. You should finish the tour without me, he tells her. That's not what she wanted to hear. She gets up from the couch. You have to finish the tour, Phineas says, getting up after her. Do I, she replies, the tears building up in her eyes. I've risked everything. If you don't, it'll ruin me, Phineas tells her. Yeah? Well, so have I, she blurts back. Then, a little more slowly, I guess we both lost. The next scene we see is a tear-filled performance on stage from Jenny where she's singing about how she'll never be enough. Then, as the song ends, she invites Phineas on stage with her. He's done this time and time again. As the roses are thrown on stage, they take a bow together. This time, though, on what seems to be an impulse, Jenny pulls Phineas in for a kiss. The camera flashes go off, capturing the moment. What was that? Phineas asks, startled. That was goodbye, Jenny says, and she leaves the stage. All of that is made up, but it's not necessarily made up for The Greatest Showman. For example, in 1980, there was another musical about P.T. Barnum, simply called Barnum, that also included a love story between Phineas and Jenny. Historically, though, there's never been anything to prove that they had any sort of a romantic relationship. But it is true that P.T. Barnum hired Jenny Lynn to tour around America, and that tour was cut short. If you remember from earlier, Phineas finalized the contract with Jenny in February of 1850. By the time September rolled around, Jenny had arrived in America via a steamship. The hype around Jenny's arrival in America, along with Phineas's marketing skills, no doubt, helped make it an enormous success. The first day tickets were available, there was such a demand that Phineas decided to sell them at an auction to help drive up the price. He ended up selling 1,000 tickets for a total of $10,141. 
That's about $303,000 today, or a little over 265,000 euros. The sales were so successful that Phineas immediately contacted Jenny to alter their contract. On the Tuesday after her arrival, I informed Miss Lind that I wished to make a slight alteration to our agreement. What is it? she asked in surprise. I am convinced, I replied, that our enterprise will be much more successful than either of us anticipated. I wish, therefore, to stipulate that you shall receive not only $1,000 for each concert, besides all the expenses as heretofore agreed on, but after taking $5,500 per night for expenses and my services, the balance shall be equally divided between us. Jenny looked at me with astonishment. She could not comprehend my proposition. After I had repeated it, and she fully understood its import, she cordially grasped me by the hand and exclaimed, Mr. Barnum, you are a gentleman of honor. You are generous. It is just as Mr. Bates told me. I will sing for you as long as you please. I will sing for you in America, in Europe, anywhere. That would change. Jenny ended up touring America for two years between 1850 and 1852, but the second year of her tour was something she did on her own. By the time 1851 rolled around, she was so fed up with the way Phineas marketed her shows so relentlessly, which included hiring over 20 journalists to write what amounted to ads in newspapers to hype up her shows, that she decided to terminate their contract together. They agreed to end it on positive terms and each went their separate ways. In all, Jenny Lind sang 93 concerts for P.T. Barnum in America. For those tours, she made about $350,000. That's about $10.5 million in today's dollars or a little over 9 million euros. Meanwhile, Phineas made about $500,000 off Jenny's concerts. That's just under $15 million today or just over 13 million euros. Back in the movie, right after we see Rebecca Ferguson's version of Jenny Lind kiss Hugh Jackman's P.T. Barnum goodbye in front of newspaper photographers on stage, the movie cuts back to New York City where protesting citizens start a fight with the performers. This is where the movie could easily be rated worse than the PG it is because we get the sense that the protesters would be using all sort of racist, derogatory, and other horrible phrases that make it clear they don't want the performers there just because they're different. In the fight, one of the people throws a lantern against the wall, catching the straw on the ground on fire. It flares up quickly, and before long, the entire building burns to the ground. That's sort of true, but also not true. What I mean by that is that Barnum's American Museum did burn down. We just don't know what the cause of the fire was. Sure, there were plenty of people who didn't like Barnum's American Museum, although it's hard to know how many of them didn't like it because of the performers inside and how many didn't like it because they felt they were being duped by P.T. Barnum. It was probably some of both. But it's worth pointing out that the movie's timeline is way off. If you recall, Jenny's tour was in the early 1850s, while the fire was 15 years later, and that timing might play into some of the cause for the fire. You see, the American Civil War broke out in 1861. This only served to help P.T. Barnum's museum, which saw people flocking to it as a way of escaping the reality of the war outside. Although, not entirely. Phineas wasn't very shy about his support of the Union. In fact, he even hired a woman named Pauline Cushman specifically because she was one of the most successful spies in the Civil War. Her performance at Barnum's Theater was to recount stories of the adventures behind enemy lines, the Confederate lines. Were they true stories? Maybe. Maybe not. That probably didn't matter too much to Phineas. 
Because he was a Union sympathizer, some historians have speculated that perhaps this could have been enough reason for the Confederacy to start the fire that burned down Barnum's American Museum on July 13, 1865. Granted, that was after the war officially ended in May of that same year, but it's not like people magically forgot the bloody struggle that had been raging for years. One of the primary reasons why people think it might have been arson is because there is some evidence to suggest that might not have been the first time. There might have been a Confederate arsonist who tried to damage the museum the year before. Of course, none of that is proven. To this day, we really don't know how the fire started. What we do know is that on July 13, 1865, Barnum's American Museum burned to the ground taking an estimated $1 million in damages along with it. That's $1 million in 1865, or almost 30 million, or 26 million euros, today. It was a massive blow, but as we learned from the income on Jenny Lynn's tour, P.T. Barnum wasn't exactly hurting for money by this time. In fact, we can get a sense for how much Phineas cared about it from his own autobiography, When the real fire took place, he wasn't on tour with Jenny Lind, of course, but instead, by this point, Phineas had become involved in politics. And on the morning of July 13th, there was a vote in the Connecticut legislature that Phineas was now a member of. Partway through the debate on a railroad-related issue, he received a telegram letting him know about the fire. Here's what he did in his own words. It was at this point in my remarks when I received the telegram from my son-in-law in New York, announcing the burning of the American Museum. Reading the dispatch and laying it on my desk without further attention, I continued. It's probably worth pointing out the timeline again and the reference of his son-in-law. In the movie, his two daughters are way too young to be married when we see the fire. In truth, by 1865, Phineas and Charity Barnum had four children. We already learned about Caroline and Helen. But then there was Francis, born in 1842, and Pauline, born in 1846. Going back to the movie after seeing the fire, the movie comes to a dramatic end as we see the ramifications of the photograph taken during Jenny and Phineas's kiss on stage. Understandably, Charity is upset. She leaves Phineas going back to her father's home. He's more than happy to tell Phineas, I told you so. Meanwhile, with the museum gone, Phineas and Philip decide to restart their show in a tent. It works. Audiences love it. Phineas decides to let Philip run the show while he decides to spend more time with his family. Charity takes him back and things end up happily ever after with a musical backdrop of the same song we heard in the movie's opening, The Greatest Show. That's all made up. As we learned, there wasn't a romantic relationship between Jenny Lind and P.T. Barnum, at least nothing that's ever been proven. There certainly wasn't a photograph of them kissing on stage. That would be some good evidence toward proving a relationship after all. And as we learned, Philip Carlyle is a fictional character. What's more, since there was no kiss between Jenny and Phineas, Charity never left him. What really happened was that after Barnum's American Museum burned down in 1865, P.T. Barnum decided to start it up again. He moved it to a different building, though, and he didn't really need any help with the money this time. Probably the most accurate part of the way the movie ends is showing how Phineas wasn't as involved in the museum as he once was although it's for a completely different reason than the movie shows. It never brings this into the film, but before, during, and after the Civil War, P.T. Barnum was heavily involved in politics. We learned about it briefly when we learned about the debate that he was speaking at during the museum fire, but his political power only grew after that. 
1865, he was elected to the Connecticut House of Representatives. And it's probably worth pointing out that he spoke out against slavery, something that's interesting since his showmanship started when he purchased Joyce Heth, an elderly slave woman who Phineas exhibited long before Barnum's American Museum was a thing. The movie skips over all of that, so we didn't cover it here, but I did mention it in the pre-release episode for The Greatest Showman. Three years after the museum burned down, the building of his new museum burned down too. That was in 1868. It was after this that he decided not to try rebuilding it. Instead, he decided to merge the performances he had at the theater in the museum along with the traveling troupe he did earlier in his showman career. In 1870, P.T. Barnum was 60 years old and he formed his first traveling circus, which he called P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. But it didn't keep that name. He soon renamed it to P.T. Barnum's Traveling World's Fair, Great Roman Hippodrome, and Greatest Show on Earth. Then, in 1881, he merged his show with another showman by the name of James Bailey. The new show was called P.T. Barnum's Greatest Show on Earth, and the Great London Circus, Sanger's Royal British Menagerie, and the Great International Allied Shows United. <laughs> it just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? That's probably why they ended up shortening it to Barnum and Bailey's. Fast forward over a century later, and on May 21st, 2017, Barnum Circus finally came to an end amid poor attendance, high operating costs, and plenty of protest over animal treatment. That's about seven months before The Greatest Showman was released. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. There's so much we didn't get to cover about P.T. Barnum's story, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out some of those things because so many of them are controversial like the story of Joyce Heth that I touched on at the end there. Since we learned about that in episode 84, the pre-release episode of The Greatest Showman here on Based on a True Story, I didn't really cover it here. Sort of like how on that episode, we also learned about P.T. Barnum's marriage to a woman 40 years younger than him, just one year after Charity died. But there's even more we didn't get to cover at all. The treatment of animals at his shows, plenty of other controversial ways that he exploited people other than Joyce Heth, or Annie Jones, his popularization of the use of blackface in performances, or things like how there were two beluga whales caught just a week before that were locked in a very small enclosure in Barnum's American Museum when it went up in flames. Their end was horribly gruesome, and there were only two of nine whales who died as a part of P.T. Barnum's shows. A lot of these are things that P.T. Barnum covers up in his own autobiography. Of course, as we learned in the opening of this episode, take his autobiography with a grain of salt. If there's one thing P.T. Barnum was great at, it's propaganda. Marketing. Spinning a story to make the greatest impact, even if it's not entirely accurate. With all of that said, The Greatest Showman is a great musical, but it's not surprising that it's received a lot of negative reviews for how they either completely omit or just overlook some of the more controversial things that he did. Or, as I tell my wife when she asks me, why can't you just enjoy it for what it is? As a musical, it's great. The message is a good one. But as a biopic, eh, I just wish that they had made it a great musical about a fictional character instead of trying to make it seem like P.T. Barnum's story was such a happy, uplifting one. 
Maybe he did some great things, like hire people who others might mock for being different. But he didn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. In fact, in his own autobiography, he calls this, quote, profitable philanthropy, end quote. He did good things if it turned a profit. He did some incredibly bad things if it turned a profit too. And for me, I think I could have enjoyed the moral of the movie a lot more if it were the uplifting story about a fictional character instead of one that I know wasn't nearly as uplifting as the movie shows. But that's just my opinion. What's your opinion? Music aside, how did you think The Greatest Showman told the story of the real P.T. Barnum? Hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group and let me know. Or if you don't want to do that, you can email me at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Don't forget, if you want to dig deeper into his life, I would recommend starting with the pre-release episode for The Greatest Showman. We learned a lot of things about his life in that one. And since you're listening to this, just scroll back in the episodes to the listing on December 18th, 2017 to find it. On top of that, I'll make sure to include a ton of links and resources that you can use to start your dive into the real P.T. Barnum over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, P.T. Barnum had two children with charity. Number two, Philip Carlyle and Ann Wheeler were never interested in each other. Number three, P.T. Barnum and Jenny Lind never had an affair. Did you find out which one is a lie? Well, as we learned, both Philip Carlyle and Ann Wheeler were both fictional characters, so number two couldn't be correct. That means the lie is number one. As we learned, Phineas Taylor and Charity Barnum had four children together. They were married in 1829 and remained together until Charity passed away just 11 days after their 44th anniversary. Then, The next year, Phineas married Nancy Fish. She was born in 1850, making her 24 years old when she married the 64-year-old P.T. Barnum in 1874. That brings us to an end of this episode. If you're a Base on a True Story producer, I look forward to chatting with you again next Monday when we'll look at some of the history from the movie Aladdin. Wait a minute. (laughs) What am I saying? I forgot. I'll get to talk with you sooner than that because we'll be hearing the old English folktale about Tom Thumb. I'll try to get that out this week. (laughs) But don't worry, if you're not a producer, I'll chat with you again the following week right here for another episode of Based on a True Story. In either case, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.